It is an all-out attack on the people who need abortions by intimidating and terrifying every person around them who might help them. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Last week, a Texas law known as SB8 that effectively bans abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy went into effect. The law, which was signed by Texas Governor Greg Abbott in May, bans abortion before many people know that they're pregnant. The law took effect after the Supreme Court, flush with three Trump appointees, refused to grant an emergency request to block it. SB 8 has a novel provision that essentially deputizes ordinary citizens to enforce the law and claim $10,000 against anyone that they think has violated it. The Texas abortion ban is now expected to be replicated in many other Republican-led states. Here to explain the implications of these laws is Lynn Paltrow, the founder and executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women, a human and civil rights organization focused on pregnant and parenting women. Lynn Paltrow, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. I'd like you to begin by just explaining this Texas law and what's novel about it. Uh, I heard somebody describe it as a law that sort of ultra conservative intellectuals, you know, plotted out over, you know, many drinks, knowing it would never survive judicial scrutiny, only to find that we have a Supreme Court that has so far allowed it to survive judicial scrutiny. And it's a law that is deliberately constructed to allow sort of the most threatening, intrusive uh, prevention of, of abortion and then insulating from judicial review. And what do I mean by that? It is uh, the law says no government agent can enforce this law. So that way, no government agency can be sued to stop the law. It says that abortions after six weeks are banned and any private person can bring a personal civil suit turning anybody who helps a woman get an abortion, any, anybody who helps somebody access abortion care can be sued at, in court, in civil court, and the legal fees, if they lose, must be paid for by the person who loved and helped the person trying to get an abortion. They can also get the person who brought the lawsuit can get a $10,000 uh, bounty for having brought the person in. Uh, and I, I was reading, rereading the statute this morning, and there's, uh, I think you have four years to bring such a lawsuit uh, and three years uh, to make sure you've uh, applied for your attorney's fees. The statute makes clear that there is no exception for somebody trying to help a family member seeking uh, abortion care after rape or incest or because of any health problem. It is an all out attack uh, on the people who need abortions by intimidating and terrifying every person around them who might help them. In all the, uh, you know, concern that has been expressed in recent years about how Roe would end, I feel like, you know, everybody was looking in a different direction. They were expecting this to come in through the front door, you know, a, a, an ordinary appeal that went through the courts, was argued and defended. And this came flying in through the side door, it seems. Did you see this coming, this approach, 
where there was no one to sue and everyone was turned into a bounty hunter in the second largest state in the country? Well, I know that on the ground activists in Texas have been following this and fighting this for a long time. Uh, you know, Repro Power Texas, the Athea Center have seen this. What isn't surprising, so no, personally, did I see this particular structure coming? No. But one mistake I think we've been making in general is to see this as simply a law targeting abortion. What it's targeting are the people who can get pregnant. It's targeting anybody who helps them from the bus driver or car driver who takes them to an abortion, to a person who advises them. But it is part of an overarching strategy by Texas lawmakers that really is about much bigger issues, white supremacy and male supremacy. It isn't just criminalizing abortion. It is labeling and surveilling everybody who has the capacity for pregnancy. This is a state that uh, at the very same time is passing voter suppression laws that we would not necessarily have predicted. They want permitless carry and they have anti-mask mandates. So the particularities of this law, yeah, a little bit surprising, but the strategy of undermining democracy and undermining constitutional review by the Supreme Court, that has been predictable by their commitment to white supremacy and male supremacy and anti, fundamentally anti-democratic principles that they've been advocating for. So explain that a little more, the connection between these radical anti-abortion laws and white supremacy and male supremacy, how are they part of the same uh, thread? Well, many people don't know the history of abortion laws. Abortion wasn't criminalized in early America. Uh, early abortions were considered uh, legal. Uh, they began to be regulated uh, in the way that we've come to know them in the late 1800s. And they were very much a response to fears about non-nativist uh, fears about large immigration populations from uh, countries that they did not view as sufficiently uh, um, white. Uh, they saw white native birth rates falling as we do now. They were terrified about immigration. They were terrified about loss of power. And there was an emerging women's rights movement uh, at that period of time that coincided with the abolition movement. And even though the feminist movement of its day did not advocate for abortion rights, they did advocate that women be able to control their bodies and oppose marital rape. And so the advocates for abortion laws that said it was criminal unless doctors who were white men uh, approved it in certain circumstances was all about increasing white birth rates uh, and controlling women, women in the home. Um, so what's the same today? There is desperate fear among some groups about uh, 2042 when it's expected that uh, people of color will, uh, the population of people of color will exceed the population of white people. Uh, and it is uh, an absolute, has been all along, 
anti-abortion laws affect all the people who can get pregnant. Uh, as National Advocates for Pregnant Women knows, we do a lot of pro bono criminal defense uh, and civil parent defense to some extent of women who have been arrested in relationship to their pregnancies. And how have they been arrested? Arrested for child endangerment, if they happen to experience a stillbirth, uh, murder, manslaughter, of a whole variety of crimes, and all justified by the anti-abortion argument that uh, the unborn, as, as they're referred to from the moment of fertilization, should be protected. And they should be protected not by providing, uh, expanding Medicaid in every state, not by universal health care in general, not by reducing the stress on the lives of the people who get pregnant, but rather by uh, outlawing abortion. Um, and uh, controlling the people who have the capacity for pregnancy and recognizing separate rights for fetuses. And if they have separate rights, if you can sue, if you can authorize private citizens to sue people who help women seek abortions, they will undoubtedly also try to do it to stop women who want to go to term who are doing things that somebody disapproves of. For example, leaving the state, not getting prenatal care that kind of thing. Talk about some of the cases that uh, National Advocates for Pregnant Women has been involved in uh, that relate to prosecuting people for their pregnancy um, and what they do. Um, some of the recent cases that you've been involved in, give us one example so that people understand what is happening often outside of, uh, you know, the headlines of the big abortion bans are these other laws. Um, Give us okay. an example. I will. I'll start, though, by saying that the anti-abortion movement has been lying to people in the United States. They claim that if they succeed in overturning Roe, don't worry, women won't go to jail. They didn't go before Roe. They won't now. And that's simply not true. Women did go to jail before Roe, like Shirley Wheeler, who was prosecuted for manslaughter, not illegal abortion, for having uh, an uh, abortion in Florida before 1973. Uh, and there have been many cases NAPW has, my organization has worked uh, on, Pervy Patel and uh, Anna Yoka, Pervy Patel in Indiana, Anna Yoka in Tennessee, cases in which women have been charged with a variety of crimes, usually variations of murder, for allegedly uh, taking an action to end attempting an abortion or having an abortion. But the other ways, uh, here's an example, uh, a woman in Alabama uh, who's a mother, and by the way, the people who are targets of these, this law in Texas are overwhelmingly mothers. They've got given birth, they're raising children. Um, uh, what A mother of uh, now six children who she loves and cares for, uh, also had severe back injuries and chronic pain and had been prescribed appropriate uh, amounts of painkillers, oxycodone. Uh, she uh, very judicially, judiciously, very, uh, you know, within the boundaries of the law, filled her prescription for that medication in the course of her pregnancy, uh, tried not to use it, only used it near the very end, gave birth to a baby. In Alabama, they tested that baby. They investigated her for child abuse. When they saw she was taking the medication by prescription, 
uh, they left her alone. But the local prosecutor decided to charge her with uh, unlawful possession of a drug, uh, arguing that she committed fraud by not disclosing her, uh, her, allegedly not disclosing her prescription for opioids uh, to her OBGYN and not telling her orthopedist, who was the prescribing physician, about her pregnancy. And so this is a whole new uh, approach, she, unlawful possession by fraud for what? For allegedly not disclosing her pregnancy, even though she had no reason not to disclose it. Um, and what's frightening and relevant, especially relevant because people hear some of the cases we're working on that are not about abortion and they think, oh, but that's about a bad woman or it's about drugs. This is just one of a couple of cases we're seeing where the crux of the crime is not disclosing your pregnancy. In a post-Roe world, in a world where every person with the capacity for pregnancy is going to be suspected of doing something against the law, then enforcing, requiring disclosure of your pregnancy and making the failure to do so an element of the crime, it, it takes us to absolutely a whole nother level of surveillance and state control over women, women's bodies, women's lives, which is exactly what male supremacy is about, which various countries do in different ways. Uh, uh, we're doing it through the guise of anti-abortion laws. So looking forward now, there is talk that Texas's law will be replicated. Um in many other states. What do you expect the landscape to look like shortly? Um, how many states are we talking about? And is there any way to challenge this Texas law? I mean, it seems that uh, uh, clinics that provide reproductive health services have simply stopped uh, rather than be sued. Yes. So that, those are a number of multiple questions. Uh, let me just start by, I think it was Paul Krugman recently who did some maps and point. And it, what you see is that the same states who've not expanded Medicaid, who have uh, some of the highest rates of COVID because of their anti-science, anti-mask policies are the same states that defended slavery that carried out and defended the most brutal forms of slavery. Not that the North didn't participate in slavery, but the most brutal defense of the most brutal oppression and system was there. I expect the map to probably look somewhat similar. Um, and, uh, but, and it's true that the uh, clinics have shut down for now. What is happening in Texas with SBA, uh, the decision by the Supreme Court not to stop the law is not a final decision on that law. So there's an awful lot of legal battling that will happen between now and a final, final decision happens uh, for, through the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. And that was part of the majority's strategy. Let's let this go into effect and create essentially chaos uh, that we will review later. Um, I, I also don't really, you know, we know that before Roe v. Wade, uh, it was estimated uh, between 200,000 and uh, 1.2 million women got abortions, despite the fact that abortion was illegal in virtually every state before 1973. No law 
will stop women from having abortions, will stop the people who need abortions from having them. And in addition to the legal fighting that's going on, in addition to the abortion funds and activists at places in Texas like the AFIA Center, that's A-F-I-Y-A Center, um, will be creating what is essentially a movement, a mass civil disobedience movement. Every woman who disobeys the law, who finds a way to have an abortion, to take, take control of responsibility for her life, for the impacts on her, for her family, will intentionally or not be participating in a movement of mass civil disobedience. There is no way our government can control half the population uh, who uh, get, has the capacity for pregnancy, a quarter of whom will have had abortions by the time they're in their 40s, and the, everyone else who loves and supports them who are now going to be vulnerable to civil lawsuit until that law is overturned, until we reclaim the state houses and the courts from the people who are not just trying to criminalize abortion, but who are trying to suppress voting uh, and take away our democracy. So you expect that abortion providers in Texas are going to resume providing abortions and risk the, you know, the lawsuits? I, I didn't say that. I certainly know that they are going to do uh, any provide any services that do not make them and their staff vulnerable to bankruptcy by lawsuits from individual decisions, whether those lawsuits are justified or not. By the way, the law very clearly says if you've been sued by one of these uh, bounty hunting you know, citizens uh, and you win, you're not entitled to legal fees. So this law was absolutely constructed to make the people who love and support those who have abortions vulnerable in every uh, financial way possible. Uh, but I know that clinics are and will provide whatever services they can without putting their staff, their resources in, in, into uh, uh, risk. But whether, whether we're talking about the abortion providers, I was talking about the people who need abortions, they will find a way. And I, I want to mention that it is certainly a, a momentous day in which the Supreme Court yesterday in Mexico uh, announced that you could not criminalize abortion. So you have on the one hand as dissenting justice, U.S. Justice Sotomayor says the U.S. Uh, uh, Supreme Court delegitimizing itself by putting its head in the sand, by ignoring the implications for the, the rights uh, and humanity of women. And you've got the chief justice of the Mexico Supreme Court declaring that now begins a new path of freedom, of clarity, of dignity and respect for all pregnant people. Uh, but above all for women, today is one more step in the historic fight for their equality, for their dignity and for their full exercise of rights. That is, should be coming from the majority of our Supreme Court. We should not have to drive to Mexico to have a court that respects the equality and dignity and full exercise of rights for the half of the people who make up this country and who have the capacity for pregnancy. I can't help think, but think of the irony of the Trump border wall may now be what keeps American women fleeing an anti-abortion crackdown in Texas from getting reproductive health services in Mexico. Um, 
What do you do? You think that the Biden administration is doing enough um, to protect abortion rights in Texas? Uh, there, you know, Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe has talked about the government can and should invoke uh, an what was essentially an anti-Klan law, an anti-bounty hunting law against Texas. But those kind of statements are not coming out of the Biden Justice Department. Well, I'm just curious about uh, uh, Larry Tribe once had to represent me when a federal district court uh, uh, announced that I couldn't even speak about a, a case challenging taking pregnant black women out of the Medical University of South Carolina's hospital in chains and shackles. And uh, I'm very appreciative of him, but I'm not sure how he dealt with the Bray decision. And that was a decision that said discrimination, prohibitions on abortion are not sex discrimination. They are not protected by the civil rights amendments. And one of my disappointments in my own movement is that when the other side loses, they fight, they double down on their fight. It felt like our side kind of said, oh, we lost that one. We have a decision from the Supreme Court that says discrimination, uh, blockading abortion, prevent making it impossible, uh, depriving uh, women of the right to travel to be able to access abortion services is not, they said, discrimination against women. We should have been fighting that since that decision. Uh, and that will be the future of this fight, hopefully together, where we understand that the, the links between the anti-abortion movement, the voter suppression movement, the, the, the e effort to cement white supremacy and male supremacy, uh, we can, we should and be able to use those civil rights laws, but that's going to require the exact, the kind of commitment and activism that we have seen from the other side since Roe v. Wade was decided. What do you think or fear the landscape of America is going to look like in, um, you know, we used to have conversations, these um, um, questions, we used to talk in terms of 10 or 20 years, but really we should be talking in a year or two after the Trump Supreme Court has had a chance to weigh in on some of these other, like the Mississippi abortion ban? Well, you know, here, here's the thing that we also have to remember, that I, much of what the Trump administration did was just a flat-out attack on democracy. And what democracy does is allow a majority to rule, and as I mentioned earlier, there are segments of our country who are terrified about uh, losing the majority and their power. Uh, and we saw that at the attack on the Capitol in January. Uh, and, and what I want to say about that that has gotten very little attention is that many of the people who were at that attack, who helped coordinate it and who were present, were lifelong uh, anti-abortion leaders and activists. And while the media made a lot of connections between those activists uh, and a variety of right-wing causes and groups, they were very quiet, the mainstream, larger media, about the connection to the anti-abortion activists uh, who were part of that insurrection. And so we have to, um, what we're looking for toward is not just, it's not by any means only a fight for abortion rights. It's a fight for a true democracy. Well, Lynn Paltrow, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. 
Lynn Paltrow is the founder and executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. 